right, it is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17, and then we're going to make our way into chapter 3. Okay, so um, some of you guys have tuned into or listened to, uh, we do a table talk series once a week where the, the pastors and we, we ask the vicar to join us. If you know Jordan, we, we get together and we talk about different things. And somebody had given us the idea recently of doing uh, a simple topic about the sovereignty of God and, and the, the responsibility of man, which is not a simple topic if you've ever looked into that. But but one of the things that, that we, um, we we see there is that this is something that even though it seems like it's at odds, we see it in the Bible right next to each other all the time. So we see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man kind of running through the Bible. Both things are true, even though they're hard for us to reconcile. And in our passage today, we're going to kind of see this paradox played out. We have Paul, who definitely believed in the sovereignty of God in all things. If you know Paul, he believed it, he taught it, he certainly believed that. And yet you see him wrestling with the fact that there's this group of Christians that, that he needs to get to. He needs to be there to help, and he can't. And so he has this, this unction, this responsibility to be there, and yet at the end of the day, he can't. And so he has to trust in God. At the end of the day, he ultimately has to trust that God is in control, that he will find a way to be faithful and to finish the work that he's begun, and that he wouldn't lose any of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Paul had to distrust in that, even though he couldn't be there. I think this is something all of us struggle with. If, if you have loved ones, if you have people in your life that don't know Christ and you really want them to know Christ, you know exactly what this feels like. You would do anything in your power to see them believe and come to, to, come to the Lord. But at the end of the day, there comes this point where you recognize there's only so much we can do. I wish I, I had the ability to save people. I just, that would be fantastic. If I, if I could find a way to change a heart or transform somebody or cause faith, I would be doing it all day long. But I've figured out that I don't have that ability. I've even tried really hard, <laughs> just not there. That doesn't mean that what we bring to the table doesn't matter. It just means that what we bring to the table falls short. But the good news is that what God brings to the table does not fall short. He's not limited in what he can do. He has a better network than we have. There are no like coverage issues with his network. There's no um, you know dead spots or any of those like can you hear me now moments. God doesn't have those. We do. He doesn't. God can reach anyone, anywhere, at any time, by any means, and that's a comfort to me. And in fact, we're proof of this, are we not? If you're in this room right now as a Christian, some of you are like you know you weren't easy. Probably to you know, you probably were written off and lost cause type. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm trying to look at the ceiling. But you know who you are. We're proof of this. God's ability to track down those who He's saving and to and to save you and to keep you saved is amazing. You know, I'm grateful for it. And if He was able to do this for you, He's able to do the same for those that you love, but that are out of your reach to save. You know, it's funny because the, the Bible talks about, you know, we have, our arms are too short to save. I picture little T-Rex arms, like we just can't, we want to, but we can't. But God's arm is not too short to save. In fact, Isaiah 59.1 tells us that the Lord's arm is not too short to save. I love that. He can reach anyone, anywhere, at any time, by any means. And this is important for us to know, especially in light of what Paul tells us in this passage, because he's going to point out that we have an enemy who is actively opposed to us 
reaching out to people and, and, and talking to people and communicating the gospel with those we're trying to reach. Back in the last section in, in verses 14 through 16, Paul describes those who were trying to keep the Thessalonians from placing their faith in Jesus. And then our passage this morning is going to tell us who's behind it, the hinderer, Satan. But as we will see, none of this hinders God. And we can have hope that the story isn't done being written in the lives of those that we love. I take great heart in knowing that. We may not see them walking with God now, but that doesn't mean they won't be there at the end. And that was Paul's hope, and that's what we're going to see as we look in this passage today. So, chapter 2, starting in verse 17, says this, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So in verse 17, Paul refers back to the, the, the night that they were forced to leave town, that they had to, to abruptly leave this church. And, and he lets them know how hard it was for them. It wasn't an easy thing to do. And it's, it's, it's bugged him ever since. He wants to get back to them. He previously has used the comparison of, of how they were motherly when, when Silas and Timothy and Paul were there. Yeah, I got that right. I was going to think Titus for a minute. It was Timothy, a fact checker or something. He talked about how they were motherly towards them when they were there. And then he talked about how they were fatherly towards them when they were there. And now he, he gives the idea that, that leaving them was, was the same as being orphaned. It's just like what, what, what you would, this, that's what the Greek word means when it says torn away there. It, it literally means children and parents being separated from each other in that, in that orphan sense that we think of. And that's what he's, he's telling. That's what it felt like to be separated. It was agonizing that he couldn't be there because he knows the trials and the persecution they're, they're going to be facing because Paul had faced them. He knows exactly what they're, what they're going to be facing for their allegiance to Jesus. And, and you know what it's like when, when, one of your, when somebody comes after one of your kids when they want to harm one of your kids, what comes up in you as a parent? It's kind of scary, really. I remember, you know, hearing about stuff like, you know, somebody picking on my daughter at school. I'm like, what's her name? Well, you know, what time's recess? You know, you, you start thinking wrong. That's what Paul's doing. He, he knows he, want, he needs to be there for these people that he loves. And if you have kids whose spiritual welfare is uncertain or in jeopardy, you know what this feels like, too. You understand Paul's angst and what he's going through. And that explains his desperation to get back to them. He hates that he doesn't know how they're holding up and, and where they stand in their faith. And he feels powerless to do anything about it from the distance that, that there is between them. So he makes sure that they know that even though he can't be with them in person, he's with them in heart and that he would be there if he could. If it were possible, he would be right there with them. Paul definitely understood the value of Christian togetherness. He says that I want to be face to face with you. And I wish that all Christians had this same conviction. Far too many Christians see togetherness as optional. Um, they, they prefer kind of the, uh, this individual version of Christianity, what we call it Lone Ranger Christianity. And that's not a thing, just so you know. It's not a thing. 
The Bible doesn't describe anything like that. Jesus has designed his church to be interdependent, just like a human body. In fact, the church is compared to a body. We need each other, and we don't work right when we're separate from each other. It's kind of like all the parts that make up a computer. Right? If I had a computer screen and I kind of just put it over there, it's off by itself, what good would it do? Nothing. It's useless, right? A hard drive contains a ton of information, but if it's not wired into the system, it's useless, right? Even a mouse, something as simple as a mouse, if it's not connected, it's pointless, right? You'll get it on the way home. It's pretty good, right? I know. It's just bad. You can boo me on that one. That's bad. It's just right there. Sometimes you just got to go with the low-hanging fruit. It's only when all of these components are joined together that something wonderful happens, and that's how the church is. That's how it's been designed, in fact. So, so Paul is basically admitting that he was having a hard time functioning without them. And does that, does that ring true for you? Can you relate to that at all? Do you have a hard time when you're not with other Christians? Do you have a hard time functioning? Do you feel off when you're not connected to other believers? I do. You know, and the, the sad truth is that you feel it for a while, and then the longer you go, uh, you get used to it. It's not a good thing to get used to. It's become very normal and even popular for us to isolate today. You know, it, the world is kind of, you're seeing it happen all around. We need to be face to face. But, but there's something tempting and, and nice about the idea of just living secluded and isolated. You know, we, we live in our comfortable little home environments where we have everything we need. It's safe. We, we have everything at our disposal. We can enjoy inter, inter, entertainment we want. You know, we've got TV and internet and everything we can stream. We can do all of our shopping there. We can pay for everything. We don't even have to talk. You know, you used to have to hand money to somebody. Now you can just Venmo somebody. It's like, don't even come, just leave it on the doorstep. I don't even need to look at you. I don't know. You can wait till the delivery guy gets in his truck and be like, okay, then open the door and pull it all in before your neighbor sees you. I'm kind of confessing a little bit here. It's nice, right? It's like, I don't have to, I don't have to deal with any of this. And there's something about that that we, we like. And I recently heard about uh, Mark Zuckerberg. He's the Facebook guy. He has this new venture right now called Metaverse. I don't know if you've heard about Metaverse, but Metaverse is the computer universe. That's the idea. A virtual world where you put on goggles, I assume. I, don't, I, don't, I heard about this and I thought, what in the world? But, you know, you basically interact in the world through this virtual thing. So you would walk up to somebody that's not really in the room with you and have a conversation, buy stuff from them. And it's all this virtual kind of thing. And I thought... Who would want to take part in something like that? You know, who would want to be involved where there's nothing real and no real human interaction? But then I thought, well, that's basically what we're doing now. I and mean, we've set our world up in a way that we can do this. And it's kind of crazy. That's one of the things I hate about live streaming our church services, if I'm being honest. It's, a, it's, it's, it's one of those things that it's bittersweet. You know, Christianity is not meant to be lived virtually. Online church isn't a thing. And people are advertising that right now. There are churches right now that are saying, hey, online church. And it's like, oh, that sounds nice. No people. And it's like, that's not church. It's not at all church. You know, I remember there was, a, there was an older couple at the other location. Uh, they, they were staying home, you know, months back when it was really, they were really concerned. And so they were isolating and doing the distancing thing. And there came a point where they were doing online church, the live stream thing. And they both just looked at each other and said, we can't do this. Even though the risk is great for us because they both have compromised health systems, we need to be back in church. And so he stood up during sharing time and just, just talked about that. And he said, basically, we were missing out by not being here. 
And the truth was, so was the rest of the church. We were missing out by not having them with us. And so they, they decided, you know what, even if there's risk involved, we need to be there. And I kind of came to that conclusion at some point too. I, you know, even though when I found out my lifestyle is actually called quarantine, I didn't know until I, you know, they said, oh, the quarantine. It's like, oh, that, that's what I do all the time. That's a bad thing. Even though it's what I like, it's bad for me. Yeah, I would even say evil, you know, dangerous. You know, I know there's some people that are tuning into the live stream services because they have to. That's the only way they get to, you know, do anything. And I'm not, I'm not picking on you. Um, but it pales in comparison to being face-to-face. -face. You know, the idea of virtual or, you know, online church is a counterfeit. It's not the real thing. And the real thing is awesome. You know, when I was a boy, um, we couldn't afford name brand jeans, the real thing. So I was forced to wear possibly the worst brand of jeans ever devised by mankind. They were called tough skins. If you've never had the pleasure of experiencing tough skins, these things were virtually indestructible. I don't know what they were made of. I'm pretty sure they had metal fabric you know, woven into them or something. You didn't wear them out. They wore you out. That's the way they were. You just, you outgrew them and then you would hand them down from generation to generation because these things just, they, you know, they barely even would bend. If you fell down in these things, you're, you wouldn't tear a hole in the knee. Your knee would get hurt. You know, it would still be scraped up. You, but the pants looked perfect. Now, you'd be bleeding out under the pants, but the pants, I don't even think liquid could get through them. It was that kind of thing. They were terrible. Sorry, it was a traumatic part of my childhood. I just had to <laughs> feel better just talking about it. But <laughs> the reason we settled for these horrible jeans was because they were close enough to the real thing. You know, they were denim, so it was close enough. They were pretty cheap. They didn't cost you much. And there wasn't any great risk of damage. And that sounds safe and smart, but at the end of the day, you're wearing tough skins. And that's no way to go through life. <laughs> Unfortunately, this describes so many Christians today. You know, they've settled for a version of Christianity that kind of looks like the real thing, doesn't cost them that much, and doesn't have too much risk of damage but it's nothing like the real thing. It's no way to experience the life that God has given us and intended us to live. This tough skins Christianity. It's like, that's a bad version of Christianity. Now it's easy to call out the live stream people because they're not here, right? Yeah, those people are the worst, you know, it's like, but you know what? This is actually the, true of Sunday only Christians too. I know I'm stepping on toes and I don't care. This is true of the people that, you know what, they kind of, Sundays come, they check the box, they go to church, they come in, you know, maybe a little late, they leave a little early so that they don't have to talk to anybody. I mean, they, everybody exists, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Again, I'm not looking at the ceiling because I don't have anybody in mind, I promise. But this is the same thing. We do the bare minimum, and then we wonder why we aren't more fulfilled and excited about our Christian walk. There are so many Christians who are dissatisfied with church and with their Christian experience, but I just have to wonder sometimes, how deep have they really dived in? Dovin, dived, dived, I'm gonna go with that. It would be like, uh, if you can just imagine, if you walked up to somebody that was sitting on a, a platform of some kind, oh, this beautiful body of water, ocean-like setting, and here they are sitting on this platform, fully decked out in their scuba diving gear. You know, they got the, the wetsuit on, with a little goofy hood, the goggles, the mouthpiece, the air tank, then they're just kind of kind of swirling their foot around in the water. And you'd say, hey, what, what are you doing, friend? I'm scuba diving, man. Check it out. I'm scuba diving. 
Right? And would you be like, you know what? I don't think you're doing it right. I don't, think, I don't think this is everything it's supposed to be. I don't think you're getting the full experience here. That's what I feel like saying to so many Christians that are out there. It's like you're missing the best part. There's a whole world that you're not experiencing right now. If you want your walk with Jesus to change, dive in and experience of the fullness of all that God has for you in the church. Full immersion, not just a sprinkling. That's not a baptism reference. It just, just works. The church is meant to be a place where you know others and are known by others. Fully known. It's kind of scary, right? But the church is also meant to be a place where you, are, where you love others and are fully loved by others. It's a place where you serve and you are served, where you care for and you are cared for, where you weep and rejoice with others and they weep and rejoice with you. I could go on and on, but this is the real thing. This is what the world longs for and can't have. And we're willing to settle for some goofy thing like metaverse instead, which is nothing like the real thing. Now, I know this takes some investment. I know that it takes some vulnerability. There's cost involved, right? There's risk involved. I know that people have been burned before, but it's critical to your walk with God. It's critical to you experiencing life the way he's designed it to work. Christianity is about the collective, not the individual. And when you get that, when you finally get that and, and buy in, everything changes. It's the difference between going to church and being the church. You know, which one describes you? You just go to church or do you, are you part of? The moment that this place becomes your church and there's ownership, everything changes. And I love it when we see people doing this. I, I know it's happening here. I spend more time at the other location, but I, I see it happening here as well. There, there was a young couple um, in 3R recently um, that, that showed up. They showed up maybe in the summertime, kind of stayed on the fringes for a while. And then one Sunday morning, everything changed. Uh, the, the, the husband got up. And he shared during sharing time. And he said, you know what? I was an inmate. And, uh, and I met Jesus while I was incarcerated. And the reason that I met him was that there was a young girl that sent me a card. Basically absolving him of his sins. I'm like, I want to meet this young girl. She, she told him that in Jesus, he could be forgiven. And he didn't fall on his knees right there and believe. But this thing just, you know, it did so much for him to meet Jesus that he wanted to repay that. So he, got to, he came in front of the church and said, so I want to do this. And I want you to help me. So, so he went from, you know, just kind of being at this church to all of a sudden he's part of the church and he's asking everybody to be part of his life as well. And so we had a Saturday there where people got together and wrote cards to inmates. He provided all the cards. Yeah, they are so, I mean, this is now their church. You can see it. There's, there's, they're walking in a different way. They're, they're invested in a different way. And it's obvious. And when, when this happens, everything changes. The more time we spend together in the trenches, working on a common goal, the more close-knit we become, we become like family, inseparable like that. So Sundays alone aren't enough. It's no wonder that now you get this understanding why Paul was so distressed that he couldn't be with these people that he cared about so much and was so invested in. He needed to be there to find out how they were doing. Now, like I said, I know some of you have been burned before and you have like the, the, the bubble wrap around you, the safety wall to make sure nobody gets too close because you don't want to get hurt. Um, it's worth the risk, guys, you know? Plug in again. It, it, try again. I would just encourage you because God would want it this way. Some of you might be asking, is it really that important? Is it really worth the risk? Well, Paul has kind of laid out the concerns he had. And when you see 
the risks that he thought were involved, maybe it will help you to, to realize why we need to do this. And by the way, the concerns that he lays out in this passage, they're the same things we get concerned about when we see people that have walked away or left the church or haven't come around for a while, the exact same things that we see. If we're not fully connected, these are some of the risks we face. The troubles of this world, which will come, whether it's persecution or just hard times or whatever it is, these troubles can easily drive us away. If you're alone and you're not plugged into a church, these troubles come, they can just wipe you out like a, like a wave, just knock you right off the rock. We can wander off into destructive sin. If we have nobody keeping track of us, watching out for us, it's so easy to walk into sin and to, and to get lost in that. We can be easily deceived by wrong thinking, by false teaching, or even by a different gospel if we don't have people in our lives to, to basically correct us, to watch out for us when these things happen. I, I'm so grateful for people in my life that will say, wait a second, you're thinking wrong about that. You know, is that really what the scripture says is, is teaching? I mean, we need that. The church does this for, for one another. If we're all alone, our faith can get shipwrecked. We can be drowning in a sea of doubt and despair without anybody coming to help us. Nobody there to throw a life preserver to us because we've isolated and we're alone. Ecclesiastes 4, which we just went through that book recently, says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and doesn't have another to lift him up. And then that's the risk for the people that walk away, but then there's the discouragement that we all feel and the damage that it does to the church when this happens as well, where we stay here and we're wondering what happened to them? Where'd they go? What's going on? And if you're like me, I trip out on this kind of stuff. I, I think it's got to be something I did. It's got to be something I said. What did I, you know, could we have done something more? Could we have, you know, I offended them. I, I think that way. Will we ever see them again? It's a crummy thing to dwell on and to wonder about. These things weigh very heavily on us as pastors, and I know they weigh heavily on you as well because many of you will often ask, you know, about the people that have gone missing, that are AWOL. What happened to so-and-so? You know, where'd they go? And these risks that we've talked about become even more serious when we understand that we have an enemy actively seeking our demise. Paul talks about this, and he, he talks about it in verse um, 18 where he says Satan is a hinderer, and he talks about it in chapter 3, verse 5, where he says Satan is a tempter. The Greek word for hindered, it's like a military metaphor that they would use to describe how a road could be blocked by creating obstacles, obstacles, obst obstacles, sorry, God, too much over other road, though. Uh, or, or that it could be torn up in a way that, that carts and horses couldn't pass by. So you would basically disrupt that ability to come back and forth to each other. That's what, he, that's what he's talking about as far as him being a hinderer. Satan will use any means necessary to keep people from each other in the church. He doesn't want us to come to faith, and he doesn't want us to grow in our faith. And one of the smartest and easy, easiest ways he does that is just by keeping us separate from each other. Isolate us. Smart. 1 Peter 5.8 even tells us what he's up to. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's terrifying to me. I know I hate verses like that. There's another one that when Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know, but I hope he never desires that. You know, I don't want that. Satan wants to lure us away from God. And like a master fisherman, he knows what bait to use. He's good at it. You, you know, one of the things I found when it comes to Satan 
and that, you know, as far as the church goes and the way we think about this kind of stuff, we, we, we tend to do one of two things when it comes to him. We, we either take him way too seriously or we don't take him seriously at all. We make, we make him, you know, everything or nothing. And the, and the truth is he's a real adversary. The Bible tells us to be mindful, to watch out for him. One of the best ways we can do that is to stay herded up together, right? There's strength and safety in numbers, and you have people watching your back. But at the end of the day, the truth is that he's no match for God at all. And, you know, we, we see this in the book of Job. If you ever studied the book of Job, Satan had to come to God and ask for permission, no matter for whatever he wanted to do. Even, even you know, hey, Satan wanted to sift you like wheat. Well, he had to ask God, and God could have said no. So we, we take heart in this truth that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, but we don't discount the fact that he exists and that he's against us because he is. So, so it's wise for us to acknowledge that we have a few things to be aware of. The first thing that we should be aware of is that as a Christian, if you're like me, you are prone to wander, just like the song says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Right? Every one of us is prone to wander. The second thing we need to be aware of is that we all like our autonomy, the idea that, hey, I, don't get too close to my business. Give me my space. Keep, you know, you like your privacy. You don't want anybody else knowing your business, right? So, so that's why we come up with this kind of low-cost, low-risk version of Christianity. So we're prone to wander, and we like autonomy. And the third thing is that our enemy knows this, and, and he knows that he can use it against us, and he does. Because at the end of the day, it's kind of what we want. He just helps us along. If Satan didn't exist, we'd probably still do the same stuff we do right now. But, but he wants to hinder you, and he wants to tempt you. And, and these are two of the ways that he does it. Keep you isolated, right? And, and keep you tempted. So what can we do? Well, Paul gives us several things here. Three things in, in particular in this passage that he wants us to do. We see this in the way that he sent Timothy to the church. The first thing is that we need to encourage and exhort each other so that we will become immovable. I like that word. The next one is that we need to track down the lost sheep. And the third one is that we need to hold out hope for those that we can't bring back. So the first one, encourage and exhort those who are here, that are here with us right now on a daily basis, so that we will be immovable. Verse 2 of chapter 3 says, We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So the first thing we see is that God puts us in each other's lives to establish each other's faith and to exhort each other in our faith so that no matter what comes our way, we, we will stand. I love that. It's so much easier to stand when you're locked arms with other people than if you're by yourself. And that's the idea here. We get to help each other stand on solid ground and remain on solid ground. And, and one of the ways we do that is just by reminding each other the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel. And we do that for each other so that we don't get, you know, I remember the old weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. We weeble a little bit, but, but we need to keep each other standing firm. That's what we do for each other. And part of the reason that we do this is because what Paul says here, it says persecution could come. Afflictions will come. And I love that he says, remember when we were there, how we kept telling you that this was going to happen and now it's happening. You remember that part? 
we do this a lot. I feel like sometimes we talk about this way more than, than I don't know. You guys probably get tired of hearing it, but we, we, we talk about persecution. We talk about this kind of stuff because it's real. It's coming. And if we don't prepare you for it, when that wave of persecution comes, I don't know if you ever watch those videos where somebody, you know, a wave comes that they're not expecting. I love watching those, but not in the church. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see somebody just get wiped out by a wave and pummeled into the, into the sand. That's why we talk about this stuff so much. It's part of the deal. And if you're not ready for it, when it comes, you'll get disillusioned completely. You know what's worse than facing persecution? Facing it alone. You know, I love, again, that the church is meant to be bound together in this kind of thing, like a wall, ready when it comes. So we have a job to do in each other's lives. We need to build each other up, speak truth to each other, and prepare one another for whatever may come so that we're not moved when it does. The next thing we can do is track down lost sheep. Paul could not bear to be apart from them. He couldn't bear to not know how they were doing. So what does he do? He sends somebody. He finds out. He sends Timothy. Uh, Paul lived in a time when you didn't have easy communication. If you wanted to check in on somebody, you had to have a Timothy at your disposal. That's how you did it, you know. But look at us today. Are we limited in how we can communicate with each other? Hardly at all. It's crazy. I, somebody will sometimes say, do you know so-and-so's number? And I'm like, no, but I have like 12 other ways I can probably get a hold of them. It's just that easy, right? So since we have a multiple, way, multiple ways of communicating and checking on people, take advantage of it. Do it. Feel free to, to use all means at your disposal. If you're wondering where somebody is, find out, right? One of the saddest things that, that ever you know, happens is when somebody leaves a church and nobody seems to notice or care. I, I've talked to, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to that have said this. And some people, you know, have said it to me, like, we left and you didn't even check on me. It's, it's baffling why we don't do this. And I think most of us would say, oh, you know what? I just, I don't want to invade their privacy. That's why I don't do it. I don't want to be, I don't want to get in their business and be nosy. Yeah, you do. You totally do. I don't believe that for a second. You just don't want to get into an awkward conversation or, you know, feel weird about it when you check on it. We all like to know what's going on when somebody leaves. That's part of our nature. There's nothing wrong with letting somebody know that you miss them. You don't have to get, you don't have to get like into a, a heated battle with them. You don't have to get down to the bottom of things or try to fix it for them or, you know, whatever. You don't have to be confrontational. I know most of us are like, I don't like confrontation. I know, I don't either. But just let them know that you miss them. It's not the same without them around. And let them know that they're welcome back. That's really what, what we're talking about here. That's something every one of us can do. Very easily. We don't have to hound people. I used to think that I had to, you know, that was my job as a pastor was just hound people. Go hunt them down, you know, and try to, you know, I, I don't know what I was going to do exactly. But, you know, let's lock them into a room until they submit and say they're going to come back to church. I, it doesn't work that way. They know where we are. They know we're here every week. They're not here because they don't want to be here. And at some point you have to kind of deal with that. But that doesn't mean we write them off or give up on them. We, we continue to pray. And we continue to, to nudge them. As the Holy Spirit nudges you, you know, then you nudge them. That's kind of the way it works. So let them know that they're, they're missed and they'll be welcomed back. Just don't ever get to that point where you feel like you need to be their savior. That's, that's something I'm just like, you're, you make a lousy savior, not nothing personal, but that's above your pay grade. You know who makes a really great savior? Jesus does. Let him do that work. Um, even the apostle Paul, as much as he wanted to do this, he couldn't. He couldn't even be their savior and he wanted to be. So if he couldn't do it, we can't do it. But does that mess up God's plans? Not at all. 
That's what we see in this passage is even though Paul couldn't go, he sends Timothy instead, plan B if it were. And you know what though? Timothy comes back and what does he tell Paul? Oh, everything's a mess. They've all left the faith. They've, they've, they're just, there's, there's nobody even left in the church. The whole, you know, there's, no. He says, everything's great, Paul. They love the Lord. They love you. They're growing in their faith. God's faithful. <laughs> Who knew? You know, big shock. Wow, oh, I guess God doesn't need me after all. No, he likes to use you. It's fantastic and we get to be a part of it, but he's got this under control. You know, that's one of the downsides of, of the pastors rotating between locations. You know, normally you see David and Chad, and I only come down every once in a while, and the same is true over there for them. Uh, we don't always know what's going on in, in your lives. We don't know who's missing and who's not. So every week when we leave here, we go and we have a debrief. And we talk about this because we, we don't want to miss what's going on in your lives or who's, you know, have they been there? Have you seen them again? What's going on? We, how can we pray for people that are there? We do that every week. But the truth is we can't keep track of everyone on our own. We need you for that. We need your help. And sometimes it actually means more when it's you that reaches out than us. I don't, I, there's that thing where it's like, well, they're the pastor. They have to. <laughs> no, we don't. But, but there's that mindset. But when you do it, you know, it, and again, it's just really, it's a, it's a bigger net for us all to work with. So. Seek out those who are missing. Seek out the lost ones. And the last thing we can do to help with our concern for those who are far off is this. Hold out hope for those that we can't bring back. You know, sometimes this is out of our control, but it doesn't mean we, we don't continue to hope for them. Paul was forced to wonder if the faith of these Christians was even real and if it would endure and it was driving them a, a bit crazy. I think we can all relate to that sometimes. There, there's something um, that we struggle with in this too. I mean, right now I can think of several people that I, I wonder about. Are they saved? Are they not saved? Is their faith real? Are they going to come back? I mean, I, I have a list that kind of just keeps going, and I know you guys do too. It can drive you mad. So sometimes, like Paul, all I can do is hope and pray. And Paul took comfort that on the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, we'll find out. We'll see who made it. And he's hoping that they will all be there. That's his hope. That's what we see, and he's expressing that in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. He's telling them that he's counting on them being there on that day. He's holding out hope for them, the same, the same hope that I hold out for those that I love. You know, when our kids were little, we came up with a, a plan, um, an emergency plan to follow in case something happened. You know, the house caught on fire at night or something like that. We had we had to come up with a plan, and so the plan was, you know, everybody needs to to get out of the get out of danger, get out of the house, and we had a meeting point. Everybody needed to come to that meeting point. That's where we would know, okay, everybody's safe, everybody's here, and that's kind of what I what I think this is here. We don't we don't know who the wheat and the tares are, but God does. Since we don't know, we need to continue to do everything we can to go after those who have wandered. We need to tell them that the meeting place is Jesus, right? And we need to tell them how to get there by believing the gospel. And then we need to hope that at the end, when we get to the meeting place, they're there with us. As long as we have breath in our lungs, we, we need to use it to pray for them, to encourage them, to exhort, to tell others about the Lord. I love that Jesus said, you know, we see this again, you know, the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Paul was struggling with both. I know it's something we struggle with, but I love this. Jesus said that he would not lose any that the Father gives him. If, if he does, he will have failed to accomplish the Father's will, failed to please the Father. Does Jesus ever fail to please the Father? No. 
So that means he won't lose any that the Father gives him. And that doesn't mean we throw up our hands and go, oh, good, I don't have to do nothing. That's not what Paul did. And we need to have that same mindset. He did everything he could to make sure those he cared about were standing fast in the faith. We can't always be the ones to do that. We can't always be the ones to, to go into their lives and do that, even though we want to. Paul wanted to so bad. So sometimes we need to pray that God would send a Timothy. You know, I love that how big God's network is. The Holy Spirit oversees this network, and there's so many people at his disposal. So if you can't reach that person that you love, pray for them. Pray that God would send somebody into their life that would listen to them, that would, that would share the, the meeting place with them, and then hope that one day, when the time comes, on that wonderful day where we stand with our Lord, that they will be standing there with us. Our joy will be full. That's what I'm trusting in. I'm trusting in the goodness of my Father for those that I love, and I would encourage you to do the same. Sorry, I didn't mean to cry, but when you're thinking about those people, you know, man, Lord Jesus, please help. Father, thank you so much that um, we, we see the humanity in Paul. We see that even though he fully trusted you, he, he also had this humanity in him that, that he felt this responsibility to do all that he could. And I pray that you would put that same burden in us. There are so many people around us right now that need to know you, that need to to, to find out about the meeting place, Lord, where we're, gonna, we're all going to end up at some point, hopefully in your presence. I pray that you would give us the opportunity. Help us, Lord, right now to, to think about those people who we know we need to contact, who we know we need to reach out to. Help us to pray ahead of time and, and give us that opportunity, Lord, to, to share who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. There is no reason that we can't do that. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the opportunity to do it through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.